Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. Welcome back to episode 53 of the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen, brought to you by Scouts, where we hire purpose-aligned and performance-proven leaders. Today, our guest is Jihada DeCarcer, the founder and CEO of New Frontier Data. Jihada is an internationalist, born in Italy, raised in Switzerland, France, and Spain, all places I can't wait to travel back to. She has lived in six countries across the globe. She speaks five languages and has a keen appreciation for cultural and economic dynamics. Jihada, an analyst and strategist by training, a serial entrepreneur by practice, identified the lack of critical data and analysis through her own attempted cannabis industry research. Despite ridicule from her peers across banking, technology, energy, and defense, she jumped at the opportunity to bring big data the pillar in any modern bargaining industry to cannabis. She has built her team of unparalleled experts from fields just as diverse as her own. In 2014, New Frontier Data started collecting data streams in cannabis, normalized them, and centralized them to provide vetted, polished, and actionable reporting to the industry before and better than anyone else worldwide. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Jihada DeCarcer. Max, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Well, I'm going to start out. Let's start off for talking about New Frontier Data. Um, I just think it's uh, it's it's awesome. I want to hear you know kind of what you guys do. Um, I obviously the, the introduction gave a little little uh, little piece or a little intro to what you guys do, but ultimately, what problem are you solving, and and kind of how did you arrive at this? Well, the problem, the core problem, is visibility and risk mitigation into this booming industry on a global scale. <clears throat> this is industry that was born of a movement. It was some stigma and transparency into it from a financial pers- perspective, from an opportunity and risk assessment perspective was challenging. Arguably, it continues to be challenging. So what we've set out to, be, to do is leverage cutting edge technologies such as big data technologies to, to begin collecting information in a responsible, objective and comprehensive manner Slice it and dice it. So study it so that we can get to to the point where we're providing actionable intelligence as close to real time as possible to, again, stakeholders or those looking to become stakeholders in this now global sector. Awesome. And uh, let me in a little bit on uh, and I and I read a little bit on it, but I'd love to hear it straight from you. What, how did you build up the skill sets to finally launch this company? Like what were the building blocks of understanding yeah. and getting your feet wet in big data and getting confident enough to jump in a new industry and apply that, those, those skill sets? I mean, isn't the whole, you fake it until you make it, isn't that <laughs> the, the sweet spot? Um, I, so if, if this is, you mean me personally, um, it was serendipitous. I, I, I say with as much humility as possible that, it almost feels like it was meant to be. I had very diverse careers that fit perfectly into New Frontier Data. So I started as a financial analyst with JP Morgan Chase right out of college. So I really sort of got the, the, the opportunity to understand how financial analytics impact 
uh, a, a larger company and a market when you're looking at more the financial type vehicles or investment opportunities. I then, because of 9-11, I left banking altogether because I was in New York and, and as most of us in New York at the time, it had a massive life-changing impact. So I left banking and I decided that I wanted to join the war on terror. So I got my master's and I decided to go into intelligence collection, then really honing the skills on how do you turn human, human, so human collected information into something that's actionable all the way to the president and to our national security. And then after that, which was a gruesome experience, a very gratifying one, but certainly a very, very um, difficult career to have. Um, I left after three, four years, and I decided to go into emerging markets. You mentioned I speak languages. I was very fortunate to travel the world. So I figured, you know what, I have financial analytics. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with intelligence collection at that point. Um, and so I decided, you know what, it was around the time where we were experiencing a, a financial, an economic sort of crisis. And so a lot of U.S. companies were looking at the BRIC nations. This is when the BRIC nations were really hot. So I was like, well, let me go into emerging markets. When you combine experience in the financial industry with understanding how to leverage technology and, and how to collect information from humans to turn it into intelligence and then understanding and appreciating an emerging market and you combine the three, candidly, you have new frontier data where financial analysts with high-tech technology collecting information turn it into intelligence for an emerging market. So serendipitous is really the word that I would focus on here for, for the answer to that question. Such an awesome story. So let's take me back to when you were, uh, when you went on your, uh, your own search for data and cannabis, what did you find? Uh, what, what did you find? Was there anything out there? Was it, was there anything a unbiased? A lot of closed doors and, and, and a lot of people looking at me like I was asking them to show me their undergarments when I asked for data. Uh, the industry, remember that the, especially the early folks in the industry were not folks that were necessarily happy to share um, information with others, right? Uh, the industry was sort of operating for many years, decades behind a veil. So um, not only was there no information whatsoever, but certainly all of the sophisticated or I guess mature market um, usual suspects were not reporting on the industry. It was too taboo at the time. Um, countries like the Netherlands that I had really had an industry in one shape or another for decades had was not collecting any information on it. So that was out. Academia had nothing. There was no interest beyond sort of, you know, your brain is a fried egg type of research in terms of cannabis. There was, there was a little bit of research, medical research in California due to sort of cancer and AIDS, et cetera. But in essence, there was really nothing that we could use from a financial reporting and micro macroeconomic reporting. So we really started knocking on doors and we spent a lot of time building um, trust within the industry so that folks would open up to us. So I, I, the first few years I was attending 50 to 80 conferences a year just to literally shake hands and meet folks and let them know that we were here to help them and help the industry by providing transparency, objective transparency, and that we were not going to do so at the, at, you know, giving away their competitive edge. It was hard. Yeah, I bet. Before we uh, before we went on the air, uh, Jihada and I were talking about uh, Y Scout's transition into 
cannabis. I think when we first started uh, four or five years ago now, I, I think we were a little bit uh, hesitant to put it out front and center uh, just because we didn't know, um, you know, what the rest of the markets that we we're working with would think. So, uh, man, we've come a long ways and, and uh, this is a legitimate industry that uh, has a huge market ahead. Um, uh, so, you know, one thing I want to ask is, is, you know, the international experience that you have. I think everybody that has traveled uh, the world and has spent time in other countries and has seen, uh, you know, different cultures, they start to understand how that, you know, c- kind of helps them in life and in business. How has it helped you in life and business being that internationalist, living in so many different countries and, and particularly the countries that you've lived in are, you know, very, very uh, modern companies that you've probably gained some uh, incredible insights and, and perspectives from. But tell me, tell me a little bit about your, your background and, and how that's helped in living in those different countries. That's an excellent question. Thank you for asking it. Um, I, I guess there'd be two two strong points that I'd make there. The first one is appreciating diversity. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that New Frontier Data, as it's at its birth, uh, was already a diverse company uh, from a from a gender perspective, from an ethnic perspective, from a background perspective, from a political perspective, religious, sexual orientation, you name it. Even when we're just four people, and then went on to be eight, and then fifteen, and today we're almost fifty. We were always very diverse. And, and I think that part of that appreciation came from the fact that I had the opportunity to meet tal- extremely talented people um, uh, in very different places. Um, so there really wasn't a lot of um, um, cookie cutting sort of, you know, I wasn't really looking for a profile. I really was looking for talent, uh, especially given that we were facing unprecedented challenges. This industry was so new. The the questions we were asking were so complex with no one else answering them. So right off the bat, I wanted to make sure that we had as close to a 360 view into this very complex environment. And and so I I was able to bring, uh, I was able to appreciate and identify diverse talent, but that diverse talent was also able to um, connect with me. Uh, because I had that experience. So, so that I think was a huge, um, a huge benefit of the traveling I've had. Um, the second one, um, further along the way in the industry, um, I think that I was able to appreciate the fact that the industry will go viral and global probably faster than some of my peers. Um, I remember in 2015 and 2016, that's no worries. Um, so I remember in 2015 and 2016, when the industry was really at the stage where we, st- we still had small investors coming in, the average check was maybe, you know, 50, $100,000, a quarter million dollar check would be a huge deal. Everyone was going into cultivation. Everyone was looking at Colorado and California, to some extent, some of the newer states. But, you know, all of the companies that had entered along with me in 2014 were certainly not looking at an international marketplace. They were really focused on planting their flag and, and, and strengthening their position in their very local market. Even ancillary services such as New Frontier Data. Um, I immediately started traveling. I went to my first international conference in Israel in early 2016, um, where I identified the first company I wanted to acquire, which was again an international uh, had an international uh, sort of angle. It was very much CBD and hemp centric. So I think that because my world, my 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 world was always sort of 
cross-continental <laughs> and cross-border, um, I, I possibly, and I guess I did see the international element and opportunity way faster. We entered Europe before any of our peers in North America were entering, and we started talking about Latin America before anyone else, and we were the first one to put out a global report. So I think those are the two aspects that probably uh, um, benefited from my, my early, my youth traveling, my early stage traveling. Sure. Well, and on that note, uh, let's go to the other side of the uh, coin. Obviously, your travel has been uh, inhibited a bit uh, from COVID. How has that changed? Okay. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> How has that changed? Uh, both personally, you know, because it, it sounds like you're the type of person that just gets charged up by being in a new place and traveling and taking that on as a challenge and and enjoying the journey and, and adventure of it. But how has how has it changed both personally and professionally? Not being able to travel and you know and and uh, getting these advantageous uh, positions that you just talked about. Uh, well, on a personal level, I must admit that traveling is exhausting to me. I'm actually an extreme introvert. I don't appear it. I know people always say that. Oh, Jada, you definitely you're an extrovert. No, actually, I I lose energy fast when I travel and I'm around people. So I've been able to recharge personally. Uh, massively because attending in 30, 40, 50 conferences a year, the traveling is, is pretty tasking. Um, however, from a professional perspective, it certainly um, has been challenging to keep up with some of the nuance, uh, nuances on the, on the regional basis. For instance, we are expanding into Europe, which is why I'm currently in Europe, by the way. And that one of the reasons is because you're, the European market is becoming increasingly important, not only from a consumption perspective, but from a production perspective and export import dynamics that, I, that we will be discussing later this year in reports, but, but that are going to become very important on a global scale. Um, but but the, 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 we have been fortunate, however, in that the, because we're now an almost six-year-old company, we were at a point internally, at least, that we were able to focus internally and the market, the, the market externally sort of did not experience any massive shift. I don't want to say that the growth of regional markets um, slowed down because as you know, cannabis consumption has actually gone up pretty much globally under the COVID the pandemic. However, when it comes to massive shift in dynamics and trends, we haven't seen that. So we've seen sort of more of a linear growth Thus, we were fortunate that not that there was nothing really that required sort of this this boots on the ground uh, last year because of the pandemic. I would say we will, however, need to start traveling quickly this year because we are beginning to see some pretty strong um, new trends. For instance, in Latin America, with Mexico and other countries legalizing, and of course in Europe, with a variety of of bills and regulatory uh, matters that are evolving. But we were lucky. The one year, I think, uh, gave us an opportunity to breathe and to strengthen and to really put our head down and study. Um, but I think that pause um, is now short-lived. I think it's time to get back out there. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's coming soon. Uh, speaking of cannabis consumption, uh, I would love to hear maybe a glimpse into some of the trends that you see coming up. Like, And I'll tell you, on the, on the micro level for us, I'm in Arizona uh, in the U.S., and um, Arizona legalized, obviously, uh, for recreation. And it was this past week where now it's actually the dispensaries are opening up. And 
I've heard from uh, people that have been to the dispensaries. I haven't uh, been there to any of my clients this week since they've opened, but the shelves are like empty. I mean, and they were preparing, they knew that was coming. <laughs> and so this is on a micro level. And I know we, you know, you're a company, this is this the data, but I mean, can let's get into like, what are you, what are you anticipating as some of the trends as we start to see, you know, uh, we're starting to see uh, states and countries and, and, you know, the like start to uh, start to move towards recreational uh, legalization. So the recreational legalization continues to be centric in, to North America. So the rest of the world is really much more uh, interested, at least for the time being, in, a, in medical applications of the plan. Not to say that there aren't pockets of, of interest in adult use and not to say that there isn't adult use all over the globe. But in terms of legalization, most of the countries outside of North America are very much looking at legalizing medical use before anything else. Um, again, with some gray areas here and there, they're quite a, at least half a dozen nations that it's sort of, they're, they're loopholes. Um, what we are seeing in North America, which continues to be sort of the most mature consumer market in the world when it comes to cannabis, one of the reasons, because indeed there is a mature recreational or adult use uh, market, is, is the during the pandemic, we've seen triple and quadruple size of per individual purchases. So certainly a very much a stock up type of, uh, of, of uh, trend, which is basically what you just mentioned. So, you know, buying everything off the shelf in fear that they'll run out and not have it. Um, we were not necessarily surprised about this. In fact, we, we started talking about this and predicting this. Oh, I thought I turned this off. I'm so sorry. No worries. Um, so we very much like what you saw in Arizona. There is um, sort of that stock up mentality in case it run off, it run it runs out. But this is something that we began to discuss in Feb in March, early during the pandemic, because we were also beginning to talk about a potential recession, economic crisis. And during times of recession, economic crisis, sectors such as alcohol. Um, tobacco and chocolate and condoms <laughs> tend to do very well. And believe it or not, recreational cannabis would fall in those categories. I think the pandemic and uh, sort of heightened that further because of the potential, because of the stress and anxiety that the pandemic itself was bringing to bear. And that's something that we've seen across the board. So consumption went up. The other interesting trend that's worth mentioning is um, depending on the population group, depending on gender and age, an increase in edibles and flour. Um, so a little bit of a decrease in vaping, which again, not surprising given sort of what we saw happen uh, in the last 18 months with vaping and, and the health, uh, potential health risk and health questions around it. Uh, but certainly a, a very much sort of a, which had begun in 2018, but a spike in edible consumption um, and a, a sort of return to flour, especially high quality flour, sort of this search for very high quality flour. And that's true across North America. And we've seen where that is true in other nations. We've seen that trend also um, sustained. Yeah. And speaking of, um, so, you know, in the U S I think, you know, in, in just my travels across Europe, and I think when people, uh, travel Europe, I think smoking is a lot more tolerated obviously in Europe than it is in the U S I think that there's, you know, some differences there. Um, 
is, is, do you expect the same decrease in vaping? Is it happening worldwide or is, are you talking more in a U.S.? I'm just, I just interested in that. Uh, just, just to see if there's a difference between the way Europeans look at vaping versus the U.S. So that is a very much a North American trend for now. And to be candid with you, and we all, we're always very honest about, you know, if we don't have an answer and we don't have a data-based answer, we will tell you we don't know. We don't have as much visibility in, in other parts of the world when it comes to granule consumption as we have in the United States and in Canada. That said, the information that we do have in from Europe and Latin America still does support those trends. And, and what from your, uh, if you can share, what countries are really going to set a, a precedence as you see uh, countries, I don't want to say get more lenient as far as medical, because medical is medical and, it, and you have to go through the medical system. But you know, when you think of what countries are leading the way, what, when you, what are going to send signals to you that the industry is really making progress in Europe when they, when what countries do what? I mean, Germany, like who's leading the charge in your opinion? Like what are going to be the pillars that really lead? From a regulatory perspective uh, and and an initial sort of early stage consumption perspective, Germany, England, France, uh, Spain, Italy, those are the the nations that sort of seem to have the, the largest opportunities. We are seeing an emergence in interest from Slavic countries, so the former Soviet nations sort of Northeast. Mediterranean nations are interested. I mean, the whole Mediterranean has high consumption illegally. So there is an emergence of sort of do again, driven by this economic crisis, right? A lot of countries, just like a lot of states in the US are looking at ways to mitigate the loss in revenue. And so taxation of something that is being consumed illegally is a no brainer. Um, something that is interesting in Europe, however, beyond the consumption, adult use or medical, and, and medical is still most prominent beyond adult use for now, is the interest from a B2B perspective, right? So large consumer packaged good companies, whether it is in food and beverage or health and beauty, interested in entering the space to address consumption in North America and to address consumption in Europe. Um, but there's some very large multinational companies um, that are looking to come up with new brands that are C- with CBD-infused products and even THC-infused products. So that's something that's interesting across Europe that we're seeing um, that I, I would say is, is fascinating to me. And that certainly shows that Europe is maturing as far as perception, even if multinational corporations are getting up to speed faster than the individual consum- consumer the, the shift is occurring. Got it. Fascinating. All right. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I'm going to go back to something that I, I think is awesome. I was super excited to have this conversation with you. What does it mean? And because of what I'm going to ask you, but what does it mean to be a woman in minority owned business or business leader? Um, I mean, it's, it, you're such a powerhouse. I just want to go back to it. You talked about the diversity and everything that, that we're in alignment in that's important to really building especially a global business doing what you guys are doing, but what does it mean to you? And then second, these might be together and I can repeat the questions as you, as you unfold your answer here. But I, I believe everybody's fighting something internally, not necessarily in a bad way, but what are you fighting? And um, what are you fighting against? Is there something that you're, that charges you up? Um, so they're, they're kind of two separate questions, but I think you'll, you'll, you'll crush them together. 
wow, I, the second part is certainly something that I'm going to have to think about <laughs> for a second. Uh, I, I fight for so many things on a daily basis. I guess that would be the first answer. Uh, listen, as a business owner, regardless of your gender or ethnicity or a business founder, right? Um, because candidly, my investors own the business. We all own the business. We're also employee owned. But as soon as the founder, um, it's a, it's, it's just, it's a constant fight, right? Especially when you're in such a volatile, high growth industry, one that had the type of taboos um, that, that the cannabis industry had. So, I mean, it, it wasn't exactly a walk in the park uh, and it still isn't, right? So that's true of any. As a female and, a, and as a minority and as an immigrant, um, some of the things that I often fight is credibility, right? I, I went crazy getting degrees from his, some of the best companies, some of the best ac academic institutions in the world, just because of this constant feeling that I had to prove um, that, that, that I could be trusted, that I was credible. That, um, so, and I think that that continues. That's something that many women and many minorities will say. I happen to also have an accent doesn't really help because it isn't exactly British Oxford accent. Um, so there's when I pitch investors, when I, especially as we now begin to pitch very large investors and we begin to work with very large multinational companies, um, when in North America, there's always a little bit of, of that fight of, yes, I know I'm a woman. Yes, I wear red lipstick. And yes, sometimes I wear a very tight pink suit. Guess what? I still can speak to you and I can, I can sort of hang in here and, and be at part with you. However, internationally, I will say that being a woman in a minority has helped me. So the, 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 the tables have turned a bit. While it was excruciatingly painful the first three, four years, um, it, it's now that we are an international company, my diversity and the fact that I'm a woman is actually helping. So uh, there is a day of reckoning, I guess, as, as I say. Uh, in terms of what really drives me every day, um, it has changed over the years. Uh, at first, it was this this really wanting to. Uh, there's, I've always been very loyal, and and I have been very grateful to the talent and the the folks that helped me early on. And so there was this massive need to sort of do right by them and make sure that we succeeded. There were a lot of sacrifices made early on by a lot of people, um, and so there was that drive of do right by all of them, including investors and 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 team members. Um, today, I, I think I've, I've returned to a little bit of my A-type alpha uh, early youth uh, drive where I just want to win. <laughs> I, I think that we're in a unique position and this may seem a little um, superficial, but we have gotten to the point where we're very well positioned to bring transparency into this industry on a global scale. And I think we can do it right. Uh, I think when I say win, it's not just making money. When I say win is I think we can't truly elevate the discussion on a global scale whereby medicine is, is, is being allowed, whereby in, in jobs are being created, um, where there is social equity. Um, and so those are the things that I begin to think about after six years. Um, and it's exciting to be able to think of those things, to even believe for one minute in the morning that we could have an impact on such macro level global matters. I mean, I was an international relations student, undergrad. So these are the types of things that I'm really excited about to see um, us take a, an active role in. And I, and I, and I think we can, and I, I'm working towards doing it. We are. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I really uh, respect the, you know, the, the idea of fighting credibility, but as I was, 
preparing to talk to you, I'm thinking you might have an accent, but you, you speak five languages. So you could be talking about me in five, you know, four other languages that I don't even know what you're talking about per se. I mean, I know a little bit, uh, but so, uh, you're not fighting credibility with me. In fact, the interview with you today for me is helping build my credibility, just so you know. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I, well, I'm going to move on to some other, probably a little bit more personal questions, but um, I think you'll, uh, you'll enjoy them and, and so will the audience. But is there a particular motto that you live your life by? Do it. And I know Nike has it. It's Nike's, but hey, I live by it. Just do it. Um, I've learned early on in life that fear is 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 probably one of fear and, and, and envy, right, or, or hatred. But for me, fear because I'm lucky enough. I don't think I, I I have had much much envy or hatred in my life. But fear certainly. Uh, and I decided deliberately that there should be no fear. Regret is is something that's awful. So just doing things, not to do it thoughtlessly. Obviously, not to be you know careless. Uh, but certainly to just do it, Talk, talking about it, thinking about it too long, talking about it too long, I, it's frustrating to me and I feel like it can be a waste of time. So the motto for me is if there's something that we need to do, we need to just do it. Um, and then if we need to go back and tweak, we tweak, but just take that step forward. Got it. Love it. And then you talked about winning, which hits home for me because when, when, the, when the gloves come off and I really think about what are we sometimes if I'm frustrated in, in moving the business forward or uh, at the end of the day that when I think about what, what am I, what's pushing me? And, and I, I say the same thing. I want to win, but, and, and I can trace that back to, you know, playing a lot of sports and, and being competitive. And, and there's a big difference uh, that I had to learn over time in being competitive in business and being competitive in sports. But what, when did you first starting wanting to win? Like, what was it? Was it, did you, did you play an instrument? Did you compete? Like, was there anything like early in your childhood that started you down this feeling of like, I want to win or how were you raised? Like, is there something I just want to go back to like that really connected with me. And I, you know, I gave you some of the reasons uh, for my early childhood. Most of it was sports related, but wanting to win and, and for the right reasons, it's wanting to win. It's wanting to achieve certain, you know, goals and, and hit certain pylons with your company. Not only, not just making money, but that is part of it. But what was the starter or the driver of wanting to win earlier in your life? Uh, I don't know that anyone's ever asked me that question in such a manner. It's a very, very uh, thoughtful question. Um, well, I, I, I moved every three years growing up, which is why I speak the languages. But with that came a certain level of solitude and independence and autonomy. Um, every time I shift countries, I had to learn a new language. And as such, that getting getting up to speed with everyone else and not feeling like I was left behind was, I guess, my first I need to win. Uh, that said, I, I think I was born competitive, period. Um, in terms of the sports, I always played loner sports, again, again, the language barrier. So I'm a runner. And I to this day, I run. Um, I remember I was in relays and I wanted to win. I wanted to run against the, 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 the male team in school. And I did. Uh, and we won. So there was a little bit of, there was certainly competitiveness. But if I had to say one experience in my life that wasn't so young, that truly turned things around and made it, it sort of ignited that, that drive, if not passion, um, early on, um, when I moved to the United States, I went to community college for about five years. Again, that was the last language I learned, English. And 
I only knew romance languages, so this one was the hardest for me. And I was older. So having moved here at 16, 17, to pick up a new language at that point was certainly a little more challenging than when you're five or six or seven. So it took me a long time to just get my associate's degree. Um, again, it's a two-year degree and it took me almost five years, but I, I wanted, I really, I, I was very perseverant. And I remember my goal was to transfer to a, to a really good school. I actually wanted to transfer to an Ivy League school. And I took ESOL, which is English for Spanish out of other languages for many years. And finally, I was able to take in normal English and I even got to an honors English class my last year, all with the same professor from ESOL to the honors. So I asked her for a recommendation when I applied to Harvard, Yale and University of Pennsylvania. And those were the only three schools I applied to. I also took the SAT like 57 times, uh, literally, I kid you not. So when I did that, um, I provided at the time you taught you, it was all typed, <laughs> literally machine, you know, the typewriter. And I sent it, to, I gave her the forms. And the next day she came to the seminar and she, she called the class to attention. And she said that she wanted to discuss something that was really important. And it was the understanding of um, not reach overreaching in life and not to set yourself up for failure. And she used my application to Harvard, Yale and University of Pennsylvania as an example of overreaching and setting myself for failure. I, something triggered inside of me that day. The humiliation first and foremost was huge. And the, the, the lack of confidence from someone who I thought I had made proud having gone from ESOL to honors uh, was crippling inside. And I did get into pen and I sent her a postcard from it. And from that day on, there's been sort of this thing of like, I, I don't care how many times people tell me I can't do it. I'm going to win. <laughs> ah, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, for, those of the, for those of you that are listening and uh, are thinking about ever giving up, this is, uh, she learned English last out of all of her languages and then went on to, uh, to be successful, uh, you know, in the academia world uh, and obviously successful in business. So uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that um, and taking the SAT 57 times. I mean, there is uh, perseverance. Maybe a, Maybe a few less, but I took it certainly a couple of dozen times. I kid you not. I took, I took the SAT at least across a two years period. My first score was 790. And I'm pretty sure you get like, what, 600 points for getting your name right? <laughs> so <laughs> I had to go. It took me a while. It took me a while. I have a feeling you're a pretty humble person. Uh, so <laughs> I appreciate this story. Um, when thinking about what, what's your big, what would you say your biggest professional accomplishment is to date? And I have a feeling you're, you always think moving forward, like you, you, you're humble, you you feel well accomplished to a certain degree, but I know you have your eyes on something moving forward, but let's, let's stop and just think about what, what has felt like the biggest uh, uh, professional accomplishment to date? The talent that I was able to bring together. And I say, I, and I say that, and I shouldn't because it's we, right. It, it really has been, we started with four. Well, I started by myself, then it was two, then it was four. And now we're, we're over 40 people across the world. But, but I do still keep a little part of me that says, you know what, Jenna, you brought this team together um, and with the help of others, but you did. And that, that to me is, is a great accomplishment because the talent of the company is what drives us. Um, I'm, I early on, I was a micromanager like you wouldn't believe, OCD, control freak, you name it, right? I, call, I called myself a war general, right? Because at a time of war, mistakes cost lives. 
Um, and so I made that analogy. We have evolved and, and certainly I'm no longer that word general. Uh, I don't have to be. There's incredible talent around me that now leads, leads with me. But it's, it, it's kind of awesome to see. It really is. Like it's, um, I never thought I could bring that many interesting and unique and intelligent and driven uh, people together uh, in a rather risky journey. This, this is still today a risk, like obviously much less risky than it was five years ago, but there's still, it's still an emerging market. And it's, you know, so, so that I would say is, I feel my greatest accomplishment. Um, and you're right. My greatest accomplishment, I believe is yet to come. <laughs> beyond that. <laughs> I knew it, but man, our worlds just collided as professionals. Obviously our entire business is built off of the premise of talent being the number one priority uh, in really building businesses. Um, so uh, not surprising that that's where you went with the, uh, uh, you know, with the biggest uh, professional accomplishment. What about on the personal side? What would you uh, say? And you've, you, by the way, you've mentioned some good ones. So I'm not discounting anything you've said, <laughs> but pers- uh, like a personal accomplishment that you look at, like you'd say that was one of the biggest for me personally. It's, it's going to sound a little, I don't know if it's going to sound a little petty. So I'm going to say it anyway. I'm nothing if not honest to the fault. Honesty is our core value, number one core value at New Frontier Data. Um, when that incident occurred, I was waitlisted with the school one, the, the English teacher one. I went, to, uh, I went to University of Pennsylvania, Yale straight out said, thank you, but no, thank you. But Harvard, Harvard waitlisted me. And I had seen the movie with honors early on in life. And I had this sort of vision of, you know, one day I want to go to Harvard. I was finally able to go to Harvard as an executive for an executive program um, December of the last year. No, well, the year before last. Um, and it was probably one of the most humbling uh, experiences I've ever had. Uh, the type of individuals that I sat across and next to, I couldn't believe I was there. Um, I mean, from soon to be president to incredibly successful multinational uh, executives to in, scientists and, and folks that have really, that should get Nobel prizes for peace and a variety of other things. And I, it was a very short program, but to me, it was something that I always wanted to do. And I guess I'm very academically driven. So on a personal level, being able to do that while working and while driving forward without sort of stopping to work, um, I was very excited to take that off my bucket list. <laughs> As you should. I think I'm done with studying though now, because it also, after not, not being in school for like 15 years, I kind of was like, what the hell was I thinking? Jesus, <laughs> homework, what? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on, on kind of that note, and this might fall in line with it, what person has had the, the greatest impact on your life and why? I mean, this is going to sound a little cliche, but it's the truth. Uh, I mean, my mother, uh, my mother with her presence and my father through his absence. Uh, and, you know, and not to get too personal, but I think that the, 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 the parent dynamic, as many of us, as is true for many of us, it truly shaped me. My mother very early on, uh, as early as 10 years old, sort of, I remember this as if it was yesterday, said, you always need to be autonomous and independent. Um, and the few things that my father ever said to me early on in life, because after that he wasn't around, was uh, knowledge is power. He didn't say it in English, but it basically translated to that. It's like you, he had 
he had, I believe, nine, he spoke nine languages and he had three different degrees and two PhDs, which is why education is so in, entrenched into me. But sort of the idea of, of being autonomous, that being strong and independent certainly came from my mother and this, this need to, to know and to use knowledge as my strength is definitely driven by, by my father while he was around. Awesome. Well, I have a uh, very strong mother too, so I can, uh, I can relate to that. Uh, and I know uh, I do have some Italian friends and their mothers are usually uh, very, they have presence. <laughs> presence was a great word that, to bring to the table there. That's one way to put it, yes. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, switch gears just a little bit, but uh, so before I, I'm gonna take it into some, uh, sort of some rapid fire questions that'll just be kind of short and a little bit uh, light, but um, before doing so, I wanna kind of go back and just see from your perspective, um, uh, COVID-19, I always talk to the, the guests that I've had lately. Uh, I've always wanted to like reach in and, and find out what good things have come from COVID? Like, what is it, you know, obviously you haven't had to travel as much and, and you said that's uh, personally kind of taxing on you. So it's probably allowed you to, I'm just making some assumptions to do some things personally that you haven't probably done or maybe never did, but what are some good things that have come of COVID? And I always try to concentrate on the positive side. There's obviously a lot of challenges and things that have come of COVID for people and, and some very unfortunate things, but what are some uh, things that have come positively from uh, the COVID-19 challenges? So I, I assume you mean for me personally, not for our company. Yeah, you personally. Uh, spending time with my family. I mean, one of the reasons I came to Italy was because I wanted to make sure that my entire family was close by. I think the, this, the a crisis at this global scale um, when many of us are used to being in different states, hell, in my case, we were in different countries, literally, like we see each other over the holidays and that other than that, it's uh, FaceTime and Zooming. But uh, the, the, this pandemic and, and I sort of took it, I living in Washington, D.C., I actually very early on last year felt that the, the, the situation around election was going to make Washington a little bit of a hot zone and so I literally just under the umbrella we can all work remote I left and I got all my family together in one place so one great thing is that it pushed us and now that we are close together not to say that we're all in the same house but we're very close and literally within five minutes we can see each other I don't think we're going to go back to not um, I think it reminded us after living apart for most of my adult life uh, I think there's a renewed appreciation for being close to family, uh, not just in a time of crisis, but just period. So that's one big thing. Um, I, uh, I'm pretty, I've been pretty high stress and high strong for the past six years. Um, starting this company was, as I said, a, a challenging endeavor. Um, but the COVID-19, and so as you said, the non-traveling did allow me, or it forced me, I'm not really sure which of the two, um, to to be a little more introspective and take, take better care of myself, not just for me, oh Lord, I need to be strong and healthy. I can't, you know, I, my immune system needs to be strong. I need to work out more, which I've done in the past, but more meditating, um, sleeping better, uh, drinking less. Uh, not to say that I was drinking that much, but literally like not at all. Um, and, I, and that is again, a shift that I hope I can maintain. 
because the introspection, the meditation every morning, while it's all it's helped me manage my stress associated with everything that's going on, it's also given me a type of a, a kind of equilibrium that I had not had before. Um, so I would say that those those two things um, I think were triggered by this pandemic for me and my family. Awesome. Well, let's it, it, just digging in on that a little bit further. Are there, uh, which you've spoke of some of them, uh, meditation for, for mental uh, and, and physical well-being, but uh, any other rituals that you have stuck with or that you have now that really help you as a person and as a leader, um, you know, whether it be you know, what you do in the morning or just rituals that you, that you have, different type of workouts, anything like that, that really help you to perform better as a person and as a leader? Uh, I have, uh, there is one. Um, so I, I've never presumed to be a yogi because I don't know yoga, but I do like to stretch and I do like to meditate. Um, and I like to read about metaphysics. I consider myself a spiritual person. I was raised very religious and I'm today, I think more religious, uh, more spiritual than religious. Every morning, um, the first five minutes of my morning, literally I could still be in bed. Um, I stretch my entire body just sort of and take very deep breath to sort of wake up my body first. And then I spend a few minutes just setting, I guess one could say an intention for the day, um, affirmation. Um, and I literally, it's, I do it before anything else. Like as I open my eyes, I, I don't want to waste one second of breath of life without a clear intention of, of what I'm going to do that day. And it's, it was something that was triggered recently during this pandemic that I had done on and off. And now I just do it well, religiously, I guess, even though it's not a religion, but yeah, that has helped me set the tone. Um, I know that yogis do it. Uh, I don't do it. I think in a matter in a way that it's as it's supposed to be done, but the idea of setting an intention for yourself for the day, I think it's very powerful. Oh, well, thanks for sharing. There's, uh, you know, out of the last uh, three or four guests, I've kind of poked around in this topic and I've learned a lot. And, and uh, I guess not ironically, there's been some sort of alignment in, uh, in the, the thought of really getting things straight in your mind in the mornings. Uh, Ian Lopatin, the, the, the chairman of Spiritual Gangster, He's really into breathing in the mornings um, with, along with some other stuff. But um, so, so thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to go through it. This, this, by the way, I will say has been one of my favorite conversations. Like time flies I'm, and I'm sitting here like, okay, how do I bring this to a close? Because there's so many, I probably only got through the, the questions that I kind of structurally have in my head. I probably only got through about 20% of the questions. So there is so much more. Uh, that I could ask, but, uh, and I'd love to selfishly, but for the sake of time and to respect your schedule and, and everything you're doing. And by the way, she's in uh, Italy right now. So it's, uh, what time is it there? Uh, it's about 7 p.m. Okay, 7 p.m. So we're just getting started. It's about 10 a.m. here. Um, <laughs> but so one, this is kind of selfishly I want to ask, but hopefully there's other people that are listening that want to know this question too. So out of all the traveling that you've done and the places that you live, like I said at the beginning, they're all places that I can't wait to travel back to. Some of my favorite places uh, are some of the places that you live uh, personally. Um, so what is, uh, what's your favorite city in the world and why that you've been to? Oh, Man, that's such a hard question. It's a really hard question. Uh, and I, I have been asked that before and I really struggle. 
uh, because it depends. And I'm sorry to say that, but I'll name a few of my favorite. Washington DC, believe it or not, despite the chaos that it's recently been through, is a city that is very dear to my heart. Just it, because of the education I got there and the friends I have there and my company was born there and the, the opportunity that it represents as the capital of the nation that gave me everything I am today professionally. Um, I love Washington DC. It also happens to be a very European looking city for someone who grew up in Europe and then was sort of shipped over to Miami. I had a very difficult time in Miami. So the, Miami would not be on that list, uh, but DC certainly is. Um, I, love, um, uh, uh, I love Rome. Uh, I love Florence. I mean, those are obviously I'm Italian, and so those are those are the cities that that truly uh, mean something to me, and they're just beautiful in terms of the history they bring to bear. They're truly live museums. Um, but to go a little further away from that, in terms of truly beautiful places, um, I had the opportunity to travel uh, to uh, Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe, as well as uh, Thailand, Phuket. And I cannot think of more, um, I at least personally have not seen more natural beauty than I have seen when I went there. Um, truly in, incredible, um, beautiful places. Um, so I would say those, those are the list. And there is one, one last one that I will mention, which is kind of unique. For those who have not gone to Petra and can, uh, I'm someone who's traveled a lot and that took my breath away. It certainly should be considered one of the wonders of the world. It doesn't really qualify as a city, but it is certainly a place that I would suggest people go. It's, it's really uh, amazing. I would second that. I'd say one of the most amazing experiences I ever had with my wife was in Cannes for the fireworks show. Oh, and we, wow. we, did, we didn't even know that was happening there. We were traveling and we were getting, they were showing us to our hotel at the JW Marriott, I think is where we we're staying. And they, they asked, they said, by the way, are you going to watch the fireworks show tonight? We're like, what fireworks show? <laughs> and then what a question to ask, because now we will go back and watch the fireworks show. They have, uh, I think it's over four or five weeks. Each country puts together a fireworks show over the Bay of Cannes and it's choreographed the music. It's one of the most amazing things you'll ever see. I'm sure you've probably seen that. I know, but I, I, I tell you what, I'm going to make it my business to see it oh, <laughs> because it sounds amazing. It was amazing. I mean, it, when once they told me about it and then we were out at the beach club watching them set it up. I mean, they have barges all over the water with a bunch of police around it because it's, you know, their barge is full of explosives. But um, it was one of the most breathtaking things you'll ever see in your life. Like it will like bring you to tears with that many fireworks with music and just, it, it was amazing. So, all right, well, I'm going to move into the rapid fire questions. You've been an amazing guest. Uh, I'm going to start kind of bringing this to a close, but um, what, we're, now I'm going to just move into kind of some, some quicker questions. What book have you read more than once or what was one of your favorite books? Hmm. I feel like all I read is news and intelligence reports these days. <laughs> I can I can tell you I read many of our reports more than once. <laughs> um, some of them are are actually not in English. Uh, one that I have read multiple times is called La Nuit des Temps, um, the Night of Times. Um, the, the, it's it's uh, I don't know that if I, it was ever translated in uh, in English. Uh, but it's a childhood favorite of mine, and I've read it as an adult as well. Um, I, 
I actually don't read books multiple times. Uh, if I do, it's for recreational purposes. And I must admit that I don't read for recreational purposes as much these days. So I would say that's the only one that I can say for sure. And the reason why I have read that one more than once is because that is the book that got me into reading. I used to hate reading until a teacher in Spain at the French Lycée forced me to read this book and that changed me. So yes, La Nuit des Temps. Awesome. What is your, uh, what's your favorite song? Hmm. I have quite a few. Uh, Live to Tell. I wrote an essay in college about it uh, by Madonna. Uh, that's one of my favorite songs. Love it. What is your favorite word? Strength. What is something on your bucket list that you're waiting to check off? I have to jump off a plane. I have to do it. I'm a little afraid of heights. I just have to face it. Remember fear, no fear, no fear. <laughs> and if you could teach one subject to school children, what would it be? And this is, you've been through a lot of school in a lot of different places, but uh, so this is coming from somebody that's been in the international school system. Uh, so what would it be? One subject to school children, what would it be? I don't know if it's a subject, Max. Um, and I don't know if there's one word to explain it, but learning the, the the idea of learning to be kind and listening and 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 sort of understand others around you i don't know what that's called um but i think we need more of that and i don't know if that's a subject in school um but it should be yeah almost like emotional awareness uh, yeah there you go emotional awareness yep <laughs> uh, are, are you a morning or night person? I mean, given the fact that I've talked to you at night and given I heard your morning routine, I'm now con I'm confused. I, as to you your know what? We're both, we're both confused. My entire life, I've been a night owl. Uh, in the past year, however, I've turned into an early morning person. Coming to the south of Italy, I'm in, an, I'm in rural area, south Italy here. Uh, I literally now get up with a chicken. Um, and so uh, I'm becoming in, maybe it's because I'm getting older, but I'm now definitely more of a morning person. Awesome. If you could change one thing about the world right now, what would it be? Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, you keep the light, huh? Uh, judge, the, the judgment. I'd like to stop judging each other. I don't think it's really helping anybody. Awesome. Well, I'm going to leave you the last word, but before I do, I'm going to kind of close this out. This has been the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen, brought to you by Y Scouts, where we hire purpose-driven purpose and performance-proven leaders. I'm going to give the last word to Jihada. Jihada, give us the last word. Well, first and foremost, Max, this is a really fun interview, very thoughtful. So thank you for that. I've generally enjoyed it. Uh, and then I would leave any listener, uh, especially women, minority, right? And, you know, and folks out there that are, that feel that they're facing challenges and want to achieve something that I would leave them with. You can, you just do. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing. And uh, if you're listening, please be sure to share the podcast and thank you for being a guest today, Jihada. This was amazing. I'll be sure to follow up with you and uh, I look forward to reconnecting uh, down the road sometime soon. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 right here on Star Worldwide Networks or wherever you get your podcasts.